Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I just want to take a minute to let you know, if you like This Is Monsters, you might like my other show, Somewhere Sinister. Each season, we go to a different place and tell sinister stories from that area. You can check it out by going to this link here. Thanks so much, and on to the story. In the serene and remote beauty of the Appalachian Trail, a young couple embarked on a journey that promised both enchantment and adventure. Little did they know that amidst the breathtaking landscapes and rugged terrain, a monster lay in wait, ready to steal the very essence of their lives and abolish the innocence of the trail itself forever. This is Monsters. Paul David Cruz was born in 1952. I wish that's where the story ended. It will come as little surprise that there is no happy childhood history for Paul. His birth parents abandoned him and his seven siblings when Paul was just six years old. When Paul was eight, he was adopted by Susan Cruz and her husband. They were a loving and devoted couple with a strong Christian faith and they offered Paul his first taste of a stable family life. The adoption should have spelled the start of a new chapter for Paul, but the damage to his young mind was already done and he struggled to adapt. At school, he couldn't pay attention during class and his only escape seemed to be through sports. He was a valuable member of the football and wrestling teams, but even that faded and his coaches noticed that he became disobedient and downright disruptive. Paul also ran away from home frequently and by the time he was a teenager, he was often in trouble with the local police. In one instance, when Paul was just 12 years old, he was brought home by officers after he was found carrying a knife on his belt. When he was 16, he completely withdrew from all school activities, and later that year he dropped out of high school altogether. By then, Susan had noticed that Paul was quick to anger and seemed deeply troubled. However, things looked to be taking a positive turn in his late teens when Paul returned home and finished high school before enlisting in the Marines. His adoptive parents were hopeful that military life would provide the stability and consistency that he had struggled to find in his life. Initially, the military seemed to suit Paul, and within a year he was in a long-term relationship with Teresa Ann Dunman, and they were making plans for their future. The couple married in January of 1973, and a month later she gave birth to Paul's first child. But the good times did last long. Not long after his child was born, Paul began to exhibit worsening signs of depression. He had always had a quiet and withdrawn side, but Teresa noticed that he began to stay in bed for days without whispering a word to her or anyone else. Paul was already on antidepressants, but his mood wasn't improving. In fact, it seemed to be getting worse. Then, in March of 1973, Paul slashed his wrists and he was committed to a military hospital for treatment. But rather than accept the help the military was offering, Paul ran away. Five months later, he was declared AWOL. 
After that, he was discharged from the Marines. In 1974, Teresa filed for divorce. She never saw Paul again. By then, he was bouncing between jobs and sleeping on friends' couches or in shelters, but he never stayed anywhere for long. He would simply not show up for work one day and no one would ever hear from him again. It went on like that for years until 1977 when Paul turned up in southern Indiana. He offered various names to his employers where he continued to pick up random cash jobs. But just like before, Paul never seemed settled in Indiana, even after meeting and marrying his second wife, Casey. That marriage was as ill-fated as the first when Paul held a knife to his wife's throat while she lay in bed one morning. Thankfully, Casey divorced Paul soon after the knife attack and he was once again back on the road. In the early 80s, Paul spent some time with his biological brother Donald in North Carolina. Donald appeared to have the same emotional difficulties as Paul, and before long, the two were hooked on cocaine and marijuana, which they would mix together with beer and whiskey. Donald's girlfriend noticed how Paul would be kind and passive one minute, but as soon as he drank or took drugs, that side of his personality would disappear and a monster would emerge. She had seen the exact same thing with Donald, who had once shot her in the head with a sawn-off shotgun after they got into an argument when he was drinking. The attack had left her partially paralyzed. Like brother, like brother? After things got violent with Donald one too many times, Paul hit the road again. Over the coming months, he made his way back down to Florida, where his biological siblings were all having a reunion. The warm climate seemed to suit Paul, and he spent more than 10 years there alternating between picking oranges in the spring and random cash jobs in the off-season. Then suddenly, it seemed as though the warmth of Florida no longer suited Paul. In early September of 1990, he made his way north toward the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is a renowned long-distance hiking trail located in the eastern United States. It stretches over 2,190 miles, or 3,524 kilometers, and passes through 14 states. Technically, it starts at Springer Mountain in Georgia and ends at Mount Culloden in Maine. But hiking from the beginning to the end of the Appalachian Trail can take five to seven months, so many choose to break up the route into smaller sections and enter and exit at various points along the trail. The trail traverses the Appalachian Mountains, hence its name, which offers hikers incredible views of the surrounding landscapes and stunning vistas unique to the trail. But hiking in the mountains is also full of unique challenges. Firstly, there's a rugged terrain, steep ascents and descents, rocky sections and river crossings. Then there's the rapidly changing and wildly unpredictable weather to contend with. Even those who attempt shorter hikes will come up against a number of difficulties which will no doubt push their physical and mental limits to the edge. On top of that, the trail is incredibly remote and isolated. If something goes wrong on the trail, there's no one around to help and very limited communication options. If the weather turns bad, there are some huts and shelters along the way, but even they only offer limited protection. At certain sections along the trail, it's not unusual for hikers to go days or even weeks without coming across another soul. But even with all these challenges in mind, the trail still manages to attract millions of visitors each year. Some do the trail for fitness, others the solitude, and for others it's the opportunity to disconnect from the world and reconnect with nature. It was all of these things that attracted Jeffrey Hood and Molly LaRue to the trail in 1990. They were well aware of the challenges they were going to face, but with Paul on the trail, the varied terrain and unpredictable weather was the least of their worries. 
Jeffrey Hood was raised in Tennessee, while Molly LaRue was an Ohio native. The pair met in Kansas when they were working at a church event for vulnerable young people, and they began a fast friendship, which naturally transformed into a romance. Jeff was a friendly and introspective guy, while Molly was an outgoing and energetic young woman with a talent for art. They bonded over their shared desire to help troubled youth and their love of the outdoors. Jeff was a rock climber, and Molly combined both passions by volunteering at a wilderness therapy course in the Arizona desert. She had also completed two Outward Bound courses and was a qualified instructor as well as being an emergency medical technician. They both had art degrees, but they often talked about returning to college to study something that could help their goal to continue working with troubled children. After meeting in Kansas, Jeff and Molly were both laid off from their jobs and with little tying them to their individual lives, they decided to take the opportunity to do something they had both dreamed of doing separately, hike the full length of the Appalachian Trail. Except now they could do it together. For Molly, it had been a dream since she was 12 years old. Both Jeffrey and Molly were relatively experienced hikers, though they hadn't done anything as big as the AT before, so they set a realistic goal of completing the trail in six months. They purchased new gear, with Jeff buying boots and choosing a particularly unique green pack which he had custom-made to suit his body. As with many hikers who take up a challenge like the AT, they each chose a trail name which they used to sign the logbooks at the shelters they would stay at along the way. Jeff went by Clevis, and Molly went by Nalgene. They also started a shared journal to document their thoughts and feelings as they traveled. In the days before Instagram, the journal was a way to keep a record of their experience and something they could look back on in years to come. Molly and Jeff were excited to set off on their big adventure, but their families were worried about their safety on such an isolated trail. However, they reassured themselves that there was safety in numbers. If one of them got hurt, the other would be able to go for help, and they knew that Jeff and Molly were pretty self-sufficient people. There was no internet or cell phones to keep in touch with family, so Jeff and Molly promised their parents they would get in touch whenever they came across a telephone. Before setting off, the families made a plan to meet Jeff and Molly at a halfway point in Pennsylvania. On June 4, 1990, the couple set off from Mount Katahdin in Maine. They had chosen to tackle the trail in a southbound direction, which is the least common direction to hike. Starting in Maine means they would be facing the most difficult terrain first, and they would be more likely to face bad weather compared to hiking in a northbound direction. It wasn't long before Jeff and Molly faced the reality of what they had signed up for. From day one, the trail was more difficult than either of them had anticipated. In one of their early journal entries, they wrote, quote, we reminded one another before we started this ordeal that there would be tough days. Days we would ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Well, we had one of those days. Our bodies have had almost as much as they can take. But despite the toll the hike was taking on their bodies, they pushed on together. Slowly but surely, the trail leveled out, and they were able to truly enjoy the adventure. Whenever they stayed in a shelter, they would use their trail names to fill out the logbook. They wrote shout-outs to trail workers, mentioned the names of other hikers they had met on the trail, and offered tips for people arriving after them. The logbook entries also shared the abundant joy they were feeling as they made progress along the trail. Nalgene left this poem at the shelter. Last evening, I whispered, I think there are less bugs. This morning, bring on the slugs. Through the roof of our tent, I see their familiar sludge. The stuff that resembles butterscotch fudge. 
squish between my toes and my sandal. Yuck, this is something I just can't handle. Their progress was slow and steady, and many hikers who had read Jeff and Molly's logbook entries met and then overtook them within a couple of days. The couple both seemed to love meeting new people and hearing about the unique life experiences which had led them to be on the trail at the same time. These fellow hikers often made it into the pages of Jeff and Molly's journal as well, with phone numbers they intended to use to keep in touch once this part of their lives was behind them. Despite being overtaken often, the slow and steady approach never seemed to worry the couple. Whenever people joked about their leisurely pace, they would tell them they enjoyed stopping frequently, and it wasn't just a rest. They took lots of photos and drew pictures of nature or watched as the various animals they saw went about their business. By September, Molly and Jeff were making steady progress and they had almost made it to their halfway point in Pennsylvania. On September 11th, they booked a night at a hotel to celebrate. Staying in a hotel room was a far cry from the trail shelters and thin tents they had been accustomed to for three months and they wanted to make the most of the rare luxury. That night, they each called their parents to update them about their progress. They confirmed the date and location for their promised meetup and then settled in for a comfortable night's sleep. The following morning, they awoke full of energy and ready to tackle the next leg of their adventure. They headed back onto the trail and made it to Peter's Mountain Shelter, where they stopped for the night. The next morning, they set off at a leisurely pace, and by 5 p.m. they had made it to Thelma Mark Shelter, which is located near the top of Cove Mountain in Pennsylvania. The word shelter was an overstated description of this particular accommodation. Thelma Mark Shelter was a three-sided lean-to with an exposed wooden floor covered in carved-out graffiti. The shelter could sleep five to six people and it offered no running water or toilets. When Jeff and Molly arrived at Thelma Marks, they were the only hikers using the shelter, but they were about to have some company. They both went to sleep that night, exhausted from the day of walking, but also excited about waking up to do it all again the next day. Except waking up the following morning wouldn't bring Jeff or Molly any joy. It would only bring terror. Unbeknownst to them, on September 5th, Paul had run off from his farmhand job in South Carolina and bought a one-way ticket on a northbound Greyhound bus. He took various hitched rides and eventually, after six days on the road, Paul arrived in Pennsylvania. When he arrived, Paul visited the local library and asked for some Appalachian Trail maps. The librarian thought Paul looked nothing like a hiker. He was wearing a flannel shirt, jeans, and combat boots, none of which would offer any protection from the elements on the trail. And rather than a pack filled with supplies, Paul carried a small rucksack and two red gym bags with Marlboro branding. On top of this lack of gear, Paul was also noticeably grubby. His wiry beard was matted in places and his hair looked like it hadn't been washed in weeks. Despite appearing unprepared for the challenge ahead of him, Paul took the maps and set off towards the trail, just one day after Jeff and Molly walked the same path. He made good time, and by that evening, he had made it to the Thelma Mark shelter. Whether he talked to Jeff or Molly that night or went straight to bed will never be known. By the time they all climbed into their sleeping bags that night, Paul had anything but sleep on his mind. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Early on the morning of September 13th, Paul got out of bed and prepared to carry out a brutal and violent attack on Molly and Jeff. It turned out that inside one of Paul's bags, he was carrying a 22 caliber pistol. You know, just what you need for a long hike. Paul stood four feet away from Jeff and used his gun to shoot him three times as he slept. One shot was to Jeff's head, one was to his back, and one was through his abdomen. It took approximately eight minutes for Jeff to bleed to death, alone on the shelter floor. Molly's death would not come so quickly. While Jeff was bleeding out, Paul tied a rope around Molly's neck and bound her wrists together. He needed to ensure she couldn't get away or fight back while he raped her. He then pulled a three-quarter inch double-edged blade out of his pack and slashed her neck, throat, and back at least eight times. Molly survived for 15 minutes before bleeding to death on the shelter floor, right next to Jeff. After murdering Jeff and Molly, Paul did what he had always done best. He ran away. Later that day, two hikers, Cindy and Biff, made their way up to Thelma Mark's shelter. They had been close behind Jeff and Molly for days, and they hoped that they would cross paths that night. While they had never met, Cindy and Biff had enjoyed reading the entertaining entries the couple had left in the shelter's logbooks along the way. That night, Cindy and Biff were planning on celebrating Biff's birthday, and they knew that having Jeff and Molly as company would add to the fun. But instead of a joyful meeting and celebration, they found a murder scene. As Cindy and Biff approached the hut, they thought it was strange how deadly quiet the clearing was. But the reason for the silence became abundantly clear when they rounded the corner and found the bloodied bodies of Jeff and Molly on the floor of the shelter. Thelma Mark's shelter would never have been described as warm and cozy, but with the addition of two murdered hikers, its bleak atmosphere took on an even more sinister air. Molly was lying face down in a pool of blood, with her hands still tied behind her back. Jeff was found partially naked with a white shirt in his hand. Blood was splattered up the three walls and it pooled in the shapes of the carved-out graffiti on the floor beneath the bodies. Despite it taking hours for Cindy and Biff to make their way to Thelma Marks, it took them just one hour to hike back to the closest town and notify authorities about what they had found. It took another three hours for officers to battle their way up to the shelter on foot and confirm this was in fact a murder scene. Four hours later, all-terrain vehicles arrived at Thelma Mark Shelter to begin processing the evidence. By then, it had been more than ten hours since the chilling slayings of Molly and Jeff, and this meant their killer had a massive head start on any manhunt. While a search got underway immediately, the investigation was up against nature itself. It almost seemed like the trail was working against them. The expansive wilderness of the Appalachian Trail provided countless places for a killer to hide, and it meant searchers had to be in prime physical condition themselves, which limited how many officers they could dedicate to the hunt. On top of that, there was no way to notify other hikers on the trail about the murders or the fact that the killer was on the loose. 
Being that high up in the mountains meant that radio communication was limited and all information had to be relayed manually. The only way other hikers would find out what had happened would be if they visited a town or phoned their families. The manhunt was a high-stakes race against time. Every hour that passed increased the likelihood of the perpetrator evading capture for good, or worse, killing again. Over the coming days, news of the murder spread through the tight-knit community of trail hikers. That's when people began to recall sightings of a man who looked out of place with his combat boots and denim jeans. While the description of the man's face was vague, there was one thing all of the reports had in common. The man was seen carrying two red gym bags. This was the first strong lead in hopefully identifying who the stranger was. But almost as soon as officials received the tip-off, they realized it was a dead end. Officers who had processed the scene at Thelma Marks had found a red gym bag. And searchers who had set off along the trail had found a second red gym bag at the Darlington Shelter, which was seven miles away. As the days passed and there was no word of an arrest, a number of fellow hikers decided to abandon their walks. They were petrified that a killer was on the loose on the trail and that they might become the next victim. What was extremely concerning about the murders was the location where it had taken place. Thelma Mark's shelter is incredibly remote, which meant authorities were looking for someone who could likely stay off the grid for extended periods of time. This wasn't some random attack in a busy city, and authorities feared that other hikers would soon cross his path with deadly consequences. While authorities were determined to track the killer down, they had little information to go on. There was the description of the strange man, but nothing definitive outside of the two red bags. There were no photos and no name, which meant there was no way to warn anyone else on the trail. Molly and Jeff were also known as peaceful and friendly people, and it was unlikely they had done something to aggravate their killer, which made everyone a target. Other hikers would only realize later how close they had come to being exactly that. Immediately after killing Jeff and Molly, Paul had continued along the trail. This time, he didn't have the two red gym bags with him. He had a nice green pack. At some point, he exited the trail and hitchhiked into the next county, far away from Thelma Marks. He quickly rejoined the trail and set off in a southward direction. In the days following the murders, other hikers met a strange man on the trail. There were a couple of things they found odd. First, he was carrying an expensive brand of pack, which seemed much too big for him, and they noticed that he was wearing the pack incorrectly. But what struck them the most was his story. It felt somehow familiar. They would only realize later that the man had given them the exact same story they had heard before. Only when they heard it the first time, it had come from a different person. Jeff. They would come to realize that they had sat down to dinner with a killer and he had stolen the clothes and story of his victims. While some hikers had abandoned their walks to avoid crossing paths with a killer on the loose, others had taken it upon themselves to try and track him down. Many of the hikers had met Jeff and Molly and they wanted to bring their murderer to justice. Others were pissed off that someone had dared to desecrate the trail in such a way, and many knew that the search would be limited because of the trail conditions. They also felt that they would be able to identify anything unusual or out of place along the trail, which was an edge they had over the police. They knew they were potentially putting themselves in the path of a killer, but the risk was justified if it got a monster off the trail. Their gamble paid off. 
On September 21st, a hiker who had dedicated himself to tracking the killer down noticed a hiker wearing the same unique pack that Jeff was known to carry. He reported the sighting to the police, and the man was arrested at around 8 p.m. that night as he tried to cross Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Sure enough, the pack and boots were confirmed as belonging to Jeff as well as a watch the man was wearing, and inside Jeff's pack were a 22 caliber Winchester pistol and a knife, the same weapons that had been used to murder Jeff and Molly. While the man gave the name David Casey Horn, officers quickly determined that he was in fact Paul David Cruz, and he was already a wanted man. It turns out that there was a warrant out for Paul's arrest in Florida, and Jeff and Molly's slaying was far from Paul's first foray into murder. Four years earlier, in July of 1986, Paul had hitchhiked with a woman by the name of Clemmy Jewel Arnold, who had offered him a ride home from a bar in Bardo, Florida. What happened in the following hours will never be known, but the next day, that same woman was found on an abandoned railroad bed. She was naked and nearly decapitated. After murdering Clemmy, Paul stole her car and drove to his brother's place in North Carolina. When his brother found out what he had done, he decided not to turn him into officials. Instead, he helped Paul escape. They drove off into the country and Paul disappeared into the bush leaving behind his bloody clothes and the knife he had used to kill Clemmy, which the police would later discover in the back of her own car. What he didn't know then was that he had also left his fingerprints in her car and his DNA on her body. When Paul was arrested for Jeff and Molly's murder, he had said little other than to offer a fake name. Any answer he gave was simply a yes or no. Still, officials believed they had enough evidence to convict him, and he was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Paul's trial got underway in May of 1991, less than a year after Jeff and Molly's murder. In his defense, Paul's lawyers blamed his actions on cocaine and alcohol. His lawyer stated, quote, This is a brain on cocaine and a quart of Jim Beam. He would take a quart of Jim Beam and a cigarette pack full of powder cocaine, and that's how he would hike. A psychiatrist who testified in his defense told the court that Paul had a personality disorder which was compounded by his drug use. The psychiatrist went so far as to state that the alcohol and cocaine he consumed that day had triggered organic aggressive syndrome, which he explained was, quote, a short period of time after taking cocaine, maybe an hour or two, when a person can become violent. Except when one of his ex-wives testified for the prosecution, she recalled how Paul could drink two quarts of Georgia moonshine and still shoot pool straight. Just like his police interviews, Paul showed very little emotion during his trial and he refused to testify. But there was plenty tying him to the killings and the prosecution presented 60 witnesses and 158 pieces of evidence. There was the semen found on Molly's body which came back as a match for Paul's DNA. There was the backpack, boots, and watch Paul was spotted with, which belonged to Jeff. Then there were the weapons found in the bag Paul was carrying when he was captured. Ballistics had matched the gun to the bullets which had killed Jeff and the knife had traces of Molly's DNA on it. In other words, Paul was found carrying the murder weapons. The red gym bag he had left at the scene of the murders also contained items that could be tied to Paul and the tobacco farm he had worked at in South Carolina. After hearing all of the evidence, it took the jury just 45 minutes to deliberate. They sided with the prosecution and found Paul guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. 
Paul then faced a hearing to determine whether he should face the death penalty for his crime. The prosecution petitioned for the death penalty by arguing that he killed Molly during the perpetration of a rape, that her killing was committed by torture, and that he was already convicted of another murder for Jeff, who had died first. The defense argued the mitigating factors, that Paul had no prior convictions, that he was under extreme mental or emotional disturbance, and that his capacity to appreciate or conform his conduct was substantially impaired. They also asserted that he acted under extreme duress. Uh, no one was holding a gun to his head and forcing him to shoot Jeff three times, tie up and rape Molly, slash her throat, and then steal their stuff. The jury ultimately sided with the prosecution and Paul was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Outside the courthouse, the district attorney commented, quote, This guy's an animal of prey. They had something he wanted and he took advantage of it. For that, he deserves the death sentence. Paul immediately appealed the convictions and his sentencing. Over the coming years, he flooded the system with appeals until 2006 when he was offered a deal. In exchange for agreeing to not bring any future appeals, his sentence was commuted from death by lethal injection to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. At the hearing for this deal, Molly's father offered these words which are much kinder than Paul deserved. He said, quote, Paul, I am here today to offer forgiveness for what you have done. I wish that you and I can now find peace. Molly had decided to devote her life to working with troubled children, like you certainly were. Paul, I think it would be great if you could pick up where Molly left off, starting with yourself. Help the Mollies of this world learn who you are and try to enlist the help of other inmates to help in this effort. You are a gold mine of critical information that needs to be unearthed. Peace be with you, brother. Peace be with you. He later commented that in order to move on, he had to believe that Molly was where she wanted to be, doing what she wanted to do, caring about what she wanted to care about, having fun and meeting and enjoying so many people. He said, quote, To die doing something you love is not the worst thing in life. There are no guarantees. However, Jeff's mother was not so forgiving when she gave her statement. She said, quote, that day, half my future was taken from me. I have missed his wedding to Molly. I have missed seeing them share their lives together. I have missed their children, who would be my grandchildren. I consider that Jeff and Molly were murdered in God's cathedral. If someone were murdered in God's cathedral, then murder could be committed any place. Soon after being sentenced for Jeff and Molly's murders, Paul was turned over to authorities in Florida to face justice for his first known murder. He was later convicted of murdering Clemmy June Arnold as well. Devastatingly, the day that Paul was captured was also the same day Molly and Jeff were due to rendezvous with their family, and the place where Paul was captured was the very same location where they were due to meet. In a phone call just days before they were murdered, Jeff and Molly had hinted at having some exciting news to share with their families, which they wanted to do in person. Their families suspect it was to announce their engagement. However, they will never know exactly what that news was as Jeff and Molly were murdered before being able to tell them and no mention of news was written in their journal. After the trial, Molly's father Jim attempted to release a book titled The Reds, The Yellows, The Blues, which Molly had written when she was studying arts at university. It tells the story of three warring nations who come to realize they have more in common than they realize, and that there was more to be gained by peace than war. However, no publishers would agree to print the work due to the nature of how Jeff and Molly had been killed. 
In 2018, though, Jim self-published the book in its original format exactly how Molly had written it and began selling it on Amazon as his enduring tribute to his daughter. In June of 1992, Jeff's sister Marla decided to finish the couple's hike, starting south of where they were murdered in Pennsylvania. Along the way, she was joined by other hikers who had met Jeff and Molly on the trail and by others who simply read their logbook entries and felt an affinity to them. They each shared memories of the energetic and peaceful couple who found so much joy in the challenges they faced on the trail. In September of 2000, the original Thelma Mark shelter was dismantled and the wooden planks which had made up its shape were burned and scattered in the area. A new hut has since been constructed nearby and the name has changed to the Cove Mountain Shelter. There have been 11 murders on the Appalachian Trail since 1974. Two to three hikers will die on the trail every year, mostly through falls due to the rugged terrain. While most of the murders on the trail have been solved, there are a number of deaths which remain a mystery. In July of 2022, Paul David Cruz died in the Pennsylvania prison he had been confined to since his sentencing. He was 70 years old and his death was from natural causes. There was none of the pain or brutality he had inflicted on his three known victims. Paul spent more time incarcerated than his victims had been allowed to live. He never provided any explanation or apology to his victims' families. His final torment as a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.